Hello and welcome to another episode of Criticalcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Vinay Gupta, CEO of Materium, a firm that helps people validate physical NFTs. Hi, Vinay. It's great to have you on. Hey, James. How are you doing? I'm good. So I think it's worth just starting off by sort of, can you give an idea as to what physical NFTs are and, and what we mean when we're referring to kind of validating physical NFTs? Mm. So the um, the obvious thing that people like to be able to do with NFTs is buy and sell physical assets. <clears throat> and probably the predominant asset that people want to be able to buy and sell is real estate. You know, So you can imagine that somebody could take, say, a condo in Miami, bind it to an NFT, sell the NFT, and then this enables a whole bunch of things to happen very quickly that are conventionally very slow inside of real estate. Um, so that's the sort of, you know, high end example goal. Then in the mid range, you might talk about things like gold bullion being used to offset crypto portfolios. And then um, you could also talk about things like fine art, uh, uh, you know, things with complex provenance, collectibles, all of these things are things where, you know, you want to be able to do instantaneous trade. You want there to be very strong trust in the physical assets which underlie the NFT. And the NFT is being used for digital record keeping. So you make sure that you've got very strong provenance on what something is, where it came from, who originally owned it. And you, you know, you can prove that you own what you think you own. That's very interesting. And in terms of how you're putting these things together, mm. in terms because you're bringing kind of the old world together the new, what kind of particular challenges have you found when, when trying to come up with the idea of, of using physical NFTs as a way of dealing with, with traditional assets? So on the face of it, this is an impossible problem. You know, you can imagine a situation where somebody, you know, says to somebody else, well, if you buy this NFT of my car, then, you know, you'll be the owner of my car. And then they just don't update the, uh, you know, DVLA records. And at that point, you know, the NFT buyer is left holding a worthless NFT. And then if they want to go to small claims court to try and get their money back, they have to try and explain to the small claims court that they paid for something, you know, using a cryptocurrency to buy an NFT that they thought controlled a physical object. And you can imagine that that as a process is going to be kind of expensive and have rather unpredictable outcomes. So the approach that we took initially is to tie everything to arbitration courts. So the UK has an excellent pool of technically sophisticated arbitrators. And at that point, if you do wind up with a dispute between buyer and seller, then at least you know that the court that you're taking it to will be able to do things like handle blockchain evidence without blinking. So that's the first part of the strategy. Um, The second part is a little more uh, lateral. And the, the problem that we're attempting to avoid in the second part is chain litigation. So... Imagine that somebody has a gold bullion bar in a bank vault and they tell you the NFT is tied to the bar. <clears throat> Owner of the NFT can redeem the bar from the vault by cashing in the NFT. The thing is essentially close to a warehouse receipt. So in that sort of model, what happens when somebody rocks up with the NFT and the gold isn't there? Well, conventionally, what they're going to do is they're going to sue the person that sold them the NFT. But the NFT uh, holder that they bought it from may well have bought the NFT from somebody else who bought it from somebody else who bought it from somebody else. And none of these intermediaries have ever seen the gold. And this is the kind of chain litigation that the gold industry excels at. Um, But it's not really the way that you want to do things in a high-tech international environment, dealing with players that may be less sophisticated than the 
sort of legal end of the gold business. So to avoid that chain litigation, what we have is a system of warranties where people selling a physical asset as an NFT sell a warranty alongside of the asset. And as the asset changes hands, every new buyer of the NFT buys a warranty on the physical goods in the event that they retrieve the physical goods and the physical goods are not as described. At that point, they make a warranty claim. And the nice thing about that warranty claim model <clears throat> is that the warranty claim is directly on the people that sold the warranty. So there's a direct co uh, contractual relationship between the NFT owner and the warrantor, even if the uh, asset has been bought and sold 500 times by the time this dispute occurs. So it just neatly cleans up the chains of legal responsibility and it allows people to understand exactly who it is that is obligated to make sure that they're made whole in the event that the NFT that they purchased is not what they thought it was going to be. And it's slightly around the houses. It's a, it's a rather counterintuitive way of doing things, but it's a good fit for what the blockchain uh, um, you know, the kind of affordances that the blockchain provides because it becomes possible to instantaneously and as a single transaction pay for multiple warranties and pay the current holder of the NFT so that you buy the package of warranties plus the right to the physical asset as a single atomic transaction that's executed instantaneously rather than filling in paperwork for weeks with a whole bunch of different insurers. And in terms of the sorts of people who are doing this, because you know, you're going up against kind of traditional ways of doing it. And you always are going to get people to go, well, this is all new, but if it isn't broke, don't fix it type brigade. Mm. Are you finding that you're getting kind of resistance from that? Or is, are people tend to accept it? Or is it sort of certain sorts of people are drawn to this in terms of seeing advantages over the more traditional ways of doing things? <clears throat> so here we have to kind of divide this up into three sets of sort of motivations. So there are people that are just blindly bullish about crypto. And for those people, it's just kind of like gee whiz gizmos. Like, oh, yeah, of course I want to buy, you know, T-shirts that have a Banksy print on the front of them as NFTs. That's exactly what I want. So there's a bunch of that kind of stuff, and we largely ignore it and stay out of those markets. Um, then we have transactional frameworks where things just don't work very well. And um, primary in this is real estate. I mean, real estate purchasing is a logistical and bureaucratic nightmare almost everywhere in the world. And <clears throat> the, the notion of tying this stuff, you know, you, in, in, in our context, you still do all of the paperwork, but the paperwork is done, you know, in advance of the sale and it's all kind of cached, you know. You go through the process, you do the conveyancing, you do the this, you do the that, you do the next thing. And at the end of that process, you wind up with a thing which is ready for a buyer to come in and they can just take over the existing paperwork that's been done, inject money into the system, receive real estate. That paradigmatically is just a better way of doing property. Um, so in those kind of markets, you know, in property, it's transaction costs, in wine, it's fraud, in fine art, it's fraud. And this approach of using warranties to guarantee the goods, it provides a risk management framework for people who are buying fine art or wine to know that if the work that they get is counterfeit or the wine that they get is fake, they're in a position where they can be made whole again and they know exactly who is on the hook. So those kind of processes I would sort of put in the kind of cluster of like a better version of business as usual. You don't do anything crazy new and creative, but you provide a lower transaction cost, lower uncertainty environment for people to do the kind of business that they're doing already today. Uh, and those are, you know, there's there's good business to be done there because our existing transactional mechanisms 
for a lot of asset classes, really leave a lot to be desired. They're very messy, they're very manual, they're very slow, high error rates, low predictability, and hard to tell how long it's going to do things. Um, the third category is kind of the whoa, what stuff, which is where you begin to do things which are genuinely new. Uh, and in that sort of domain, uh, I would point to things like um, uh, risk mitigation in areas like wine. So there's a whole um, set of problems inside of the wine industry that basically boil down to people don't trust each other very much and for very good reason. So being able to do things like fluidly buy and sell wine, which is still being held uh, in the chateau's uh, own cellars, you know, that enables both uh, individual wine uh, buyers and also intermediaries like wine dealers to be able to trade wine without creating any of the uncertainty which causes the existing industry to have such a terrible uh, problem with counterfeiting. And that as an approach begins to really open up a new horizon in wine because it enables people to build a fairly substantial cellar without having to build a substantial cellar on their own premises. You can own wine in the cellars of vineyards around the world. You can get access to that wine when you want to drink it relatively easily. And that as an approach, I think, is a much better fit for what people want when they're building a wine cellar than having the wine pass through the hands of a number of dealers before it reaches them and then discovering when the time comes to drink it that the wine that they're drinking is fake. And, you know, that's not a small problem in a small industry. Um, there is something like $50 billion of fake wine being drunk every year. And you can imagine that that makes it very, very difficult for the chateaus to get full value for the wine that they are selling. That's really interesting. I think, I mean, one thing we, we, we sort of, it's so topical at the moment, I think we've got to talk about it, is actually the recent statements around Sunak and, you know, the statements around NFTs and how they might be done by the Royal Mint and also the talking about the UK becoming a crypto hub. Mm. Do you have any thoughts in terms of um, a response to what's coming out then and, and the direction you see the UK is going as a result? So when we started Materium five years ago, um, our concept of operations was that we were going to build a peer, you know, very much in the sense of like, you know, the, the old days of sort of cargo ships. You know, we were going to build a peer and the peer was going to extend from the kind of safe, dry shore of the city of London out into the crazy turbulencies of the crypto market. And the idea was that you would build this peer out, we would build this peer out, and then you could do the exchange of goods and services between the City of London ecosystem and the crypto ecosystem. And, you know, we think there are multiple things that need to go backwards and forwards over that bridge. Um, it's legal, it's audit, um, it's accounting, it's risk management, it's all the functions that you would see inside of, for example, investment banking, when people want to do things like uh, turn a portfolio of real estate into a public traded REIT. Um, so we were sort of of the opinion that a, a large scale fusion of interests between the crypto community and the city of London became inevitable after Brexit. Right? Once you set Britain on a kind of global Britain perspective, you start saying the UK becomes a point where you can connect global infrastructures through the UK and the global infrastructures are things like the internet, the international banking system, the crypto economy, um, international shipping. You know, th there are lots of areas where once you make the bet that you're going to bet on global systems rather than EU systems and you're going to become an actor, you know, in this kind of entrepreneurial mode, um, 
you know, we sort of viewed it as inevitable that eventually the government would be like, right, okay, City of London, go out there and make this crypto market work the way they ought to work. You guys are the adults in the room, go forth and go there and make this thing work properly. Um, so we've been kind of diligently working towards that kind of an approach. And in the crypto world, we're regarded as being extraordinarily boring and uptight. You know, like we don't smell like the crypto world at all. And the crypto world looks at us like, why are you here? What are you even doing in this room? And it's kind of like, do you want to be able to buy real estate using crypto and actually own the real estate at the end of the transaction? Or do you want to buy NFTs and pray that the real estate is there? And so, you know, for us, what we see is this as being like the, the natural role of government is to make sure that people, you know, actually are not being ripped off at a grand scale. You know, systemic prevention of fraud, enforcement of property rights, crypto needs all of this stuff as soon as you're no longer buying pictures of bored monkeys. You know, the, the, the step into the real world, the reorganization of world trade, all the trade facilitation type, um, you know, businesses which will emerge as we go down this kind of trajectory, all of that kind of work, you need state involvement if you want to bring crypto into the real world where we can begin to actually solve some of these problems. Um, and you know, here I would point to green cell capital as an example of what happens when you have very, very large scale risk taking with very poor transparency. You know, if you had seen something like green cell that was built on a cryptographic platform that would have enabled things like continuous risk monitoring and continuous audit, it also would have helped them because it would have let them do much more collateralized lending rather than uncollateralized lending. I think you can see that a lot of the good business that Greensill was doing could have been preserved and the bad business that crept in and destabilized them could have been spotted early enough so that those practices would have then propagated through the company. Um, and I think that that as a payoff for crypto, the idea that you could build an extremely transparent and extremely resilient uh, financial system using these technologies, I think the UK is basically setting course in that direction, and then it will be, you know, possibly, you know, might be as long as 20 years until that vision is fully realized. But the impacts are on the same level as the impacts that we saw from Big Bang. You know, there is a new generation of technology, there is a new generation of trade which requires, you know, regulating and financing and executing. And I think the UK government has made a very clear play for going into that territory and using the City of London's expertise to bring the necessary order to the crypto ecosystem so that it can begin to get involved in real world trade at scale, which is the logical trajectory, right? Because eventually you run out of bored apes and the interest in bored apes, you run out of, you know, crappy crypto tokens for, you know, using apps that will never really get any kind of scale. And eventually you say, what is this good for? And what it's good for is making very large international payments with very low uncertainty and tracking exactly what's happening in a deal because every single step is logged on chain. You know, th there's no doubt at all that there is a huge role for crypto to play in global finance, but it is genuinely about the technology rather than being about the tokens. And, and just one last question, because it, it so much comes up again and again. One of the things we've seen on the European side are you know, questions being raised about the environment and whether crypto assets and, and the trading cost assets cause environmental damage and, and what should be done about that. And I know, you know, the, the press tends to give a very one dimensional picture on that side of things that, and you've been involved looking at the environmental impact of some of this kind of stuff. Can you just go a few words, maybe just sort of almost set the record straight as to um, 
the impact of blockchain and how it interacts with the environment? Sure. Um, so I'm an environmentalist. Uh, I spent uh, five years in an environmental think tank in the early 2000s working on uh, energy policy around solar panels and wind. Uh, and I take this stuff very seriously. I mean, my approach to this is really that I basically just grit my teeth and hold my nose every time we use something like Ethereum or Bitcoin because I know we're throwing out carbon in that process and it's a lot. And we buy offsets for every single transaction that we do. Uh, as a way of kind of mitigating that impact. Um, we also helped the Avalanche blockchain go carbon uh, net zero last year for COP26. Um, and that was a remarkably easy process because they're a third generation chain and they've gotten rid of the extremely environmentally and uh, economically destructive mining process. They moved to what they call proof of stake. Actually, it's a native proof of stake chain. And it has about 500 tons, well, well below 500 tons of CO2 emissions per year, which is on the order of maybe 10 ordinary American households. It's it's really not a very uh, carbon intensive process, as opposed to Bitcoin, which is roughly the same emissions as the city of Las Vegas. Um, I think that it's inevitable the proof of stake systems are going to dominate. I don't know what we do about the legacy emissions from Bitcoin. You know, it would cost roughly a billion dollars a year to offset the CO2 emissions for Bitcoin as it stands, but it's been around for 10 years. And I find it hard to imagine the Bitcoiners are going to pony up $10 billion to offset their CO2 emissions to date. So I do sort of wonder, you know, does that become a regulatory issue and Bitcoiners get forced to offset their emissions? And if they do get forced to offset the emissions, does everybody else get forced to offset their emissions too? You know, I, I just have a feeling that that is a hard problem um, going forwards, I think more and more of the crypto industry is going to move on to clean chains and Ethereum is going to move in that direction over the next probably, I don't know, six months. I think you'll see Ethereum approach uh, you know, an enormous reduction in their carbon footprint and then possibly they will also go net zero. Um, but there is this problem of legacy emissions for Bitcoin, which is basically the, you know, kind of sort of Uncle Fester upstairs in the attic of crypto, it's like, oh yeah, Bitcoin, you know, it's still there and it's as primitive as it was, you know, environmentally, it's as knuckle dragging and primitive as it was 10 years ago. It hasn't changed, it hasn't evolved, and it's increasingly unacceptable and problematic to have emissions on that scale. Um, and the Bitcoiners' response is to try and move Bitcoin increasingly onto mining with clean energy, but you still have this problem that you still have the environmental footprint from all the mining equipment which is being used to support those transactions. So, you know, I just think proof of work is really, really complex um, because it does give you, you know, gold standard decentralization, but it does have unavoidable massive environmental costs. And I kind of feel like that's becoming less acceptable as time passes. Thank you, that's been really interesting. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. If anyone listening would like to reach out to Vinay, his email address is v.gupta, G-U-P-T-A, at materium, M-A-T-T-E-R-E-U-M, dot com. Thank you for coming on, Vinay. It's been absolutely fascinating. Really enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to our latest podcast. Gunnar Cook has a market-leading blockchain, crypto assets, and DeFi team providing legal advice across the whole of the blockchain ecosystem. Our members have been heavily involved in helping shape the legal and regulatory framework for blockchain and crypto assets from the start, meaning that we have an intuitive understanding of our clients' needs and can provide focused, pragmatic advice 
at predictable cost. For more information, please visit our website. Thank you again.